to Seaford. This is MCS 343 week four. If you're an MCS 575 student, you don't need to listen to this podcast unless you're particularly interested in our continuing discussion of Western frameworks. And this week we're going to be talking about virtue ethics and ethics of care. So by the end of this week, or after you've done the reading and listened to this podcast and participated, you should be able to define virtue ethics, define ethics of care, and discuss some of the relative merits or shortcomings of each. So as a general introduction, there's this underlying influence of Aristotle in these readings. And one of the terms that keeps coming up is eudaimonia, which is the good composed of all goods, an ability which suffices for living well, perfection in respect of virtue, resources sufficient for a living creature. What does that mean exactly? So in the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle writes that while people agree eudaimonia is the highest good for human beings, they don't agree on what counts as doing and living well. And here's a quote from the uh, book is, Verbally, there is a general, very general agreement for both the general run of men and people of superior refinement, that is to say, it is eudaimonia, and ident- identify living well and faring well with being happy. But with regard to what eudaimonia is, they differ. And the many do not give the same account as the wise. For the former seem to think it is uh, some plain and obvious thing like pleasure, wealth, or honor. So when we say that eudaimon is a life which is objectively desirable and means living well, that doesn't mean very much because we all want that sort of life and we all agree that, yes, it's desirable. Uh, it's We want to live well, we want to live right, but what does it mean to live right? So a more important and difficult question is when we clarify what activities entail living well. Uh, what kind of life do we have to live in order to have a good life? In Greek philosophy, the, they answer the question of how to uh, how to achieve eudaimonia by bringing in the concept of arte, or virtue. Aristotle says that the eudaimon life is one of virtuous activity in accordance with reason. So Aristotle emphasized the importance of habituation, which is this practicing of virtuous behavior. It's an ongoing life in which we actually actively are engaged and doing things that are virtuous and living virtuously. So what we see in these readings is how uh, virtuous behavior is something that we both somewhat might innately know, uh, nurture or uh, nature, excuse me, and how uh, and how we will learn and are socialized to it over time as in the uh, nurture, uh, nurture versus nature. That's what I'm trying to get at here. So it takes both, right? Especially in the boss reading, we come into a discussion of where does our moral reasoning come from, our moral knowledge. And it can come from uh, places that are innate to us and also from our society. So we'll get into that in a minute. But to sum up, really what is running through these readings is this idea of virtue ethics. And it's one of three major approaches in Western normative ethics. We discussed the other two last week. Uh, in contrast, like virtue ethics emphasizes the virtues or moral character of an individual, of someone. This is in contrast to deontology, which emphasizes duties or rules, or consequentialism, which emphasizes the consequences of our actions. So the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy characterizes those approaches in this way. Quote, suppose it is obvious that someone in need should be helped. A utilitarian will point to the fact that the consequences of doing so will maximize well-being, right? Utilitarian, consequentialist, they're going to say that if we do this, well, it'll maximize well-being or pleasure or good. 
A deontologist will point to the fact that in doing so, the agent will be enacting and will be acting in accordance with a moral rule, like do unto others as you would have done by. So they would be acting according to some principle, some duty, some rule. But a virtue ethicist would say that uh, helping the person would be charitable or benevolent. It would reflect on some motivation, some aspect of somebody's character. And having a virtuous character is what virtue ethics is all about. Now, to some degree, ethics of care is related because it sees benevolence as a main virtue and it emphasizes the importance of interpersonal relationships and others in our lives. It's developed by Nell Noddings and Carol Gilligan, and it doesn't get as much justice in the boss reading as I thought it uh, did before, but it's still an important uh, type of ethical framework to look into and to research more, particularly if you're interested in alternatives to these kind of three major approaches in Western normative ethics, consequentialism, deontology, and virtue ethics. So I'm going to start with the boss reading, but up front, I just want to tell you that the other reading, uh, Plessons uh, from 2013, is very difficult. The main takeaways involve how we can apply Aristotle's ideas about habituation to a eudaimonic life and have a digital flourishing. So uh, I really emphasize the boss reading this week because it discusses really how we arrive at a virtuous life, how we uh, have what are, it means to have our conscience and to really explore those uh, ideas. So I'm just going to read through some of my notes, which are taken from the summary and emphasize some key points here. So first off, conscience provides knowledge about right and wrong. It motivates us to do what is right and demands that we act in accordance with it. So what does your conscience look like? What does it mean to have a conscience? This is the idea of conscience. It's this kind of inner voice, this expressive idea about what it is in ourselves that tells us, like, how should we be? How should we behave? There are three main forces that shape our conscience. This is heredi uh, heredity, learning our environmental factors, and conscious moral direction. So we have nature versus nurture and something else. There's conscious decisions that we make. Heredity or bi uh, biological factors include natural virtues like sympathy and a sense of justice. So the frontal lobes of the brain appear to play a critical role in conscience. And we can see in the book where it talks about how people who've had damage to certain parts of their brain seem to be sociopathic or lack that certain sort of conscience. Learning, on our, uh, learning or environmental factors that shape our conscience include our cultural norms, our families, our experiences. And this is what is emphasized by cultural relativists, behaviorists, and Freudians who say that morality is a result of environmental forces. forces. Conscious moral direction involves active deliberation and accepting responsibility for our moral decisions. Most philosophers contend that the development of conscious moral direction is necessary for becoming a truly moral person and a person of integrity. So we cannot, and this is one of the key points of this boss reading, is that we cannot just allow uh, or rely on our innate sense of justice, our innate sense of sympathy, uh, care, and respect for each other that we might have innate in ourselves. We also can't rely on our culture or how we've been brought up, how we've learned, uh, what we've been taught over the years. But we have to have an autonomous sense of direction and an individual kind of control over what we do. So this is a question for you all. Uh, discuss a time when you went along with the crowd, either actively or as a passive bystander, even though you knew what they were doing was morally wrong. How did you feel afterwards? What thoughts went through your mind? 
relate your answer to the concept of conscience. Did you listen to your conscience? Did you, did you ignore your conscience? Or did you feel like your conscience was telling you to act along with the crowd? Uh, but no, if they told you to act along with the crowd, then maybe you thought they weren't wrong. So it's important here to find some place where you are in your memory, where you were uncomfortable and yet did nothing and what was going through your mind. So conscience involves both moral sentiments and reason. And the effective element of consciousness involves moral sentiments or feelings that we get. So affectivity uh, means emotions. It means these feelings, these things that we are actively feeling. These can include sympathy, helpers high, moral outrage, and guilt. And we're all familiar, especially with moral outrage, I think. So we have this question uh, that we're going to get to later on that really provokes moral outrage. The cognitive element of our conscience involves making rational moral judgments. And this is much in line with the ontologist or consequentialist approach to ethics, which say, you know, we are using our rationality and our uh, minds in order to make active decisions because we are rational beings and so on and so forth. But the active and the con cognitive elements of the conscious work together. So for virtue ethics, for the kind of everyday ethics that we're involved with, a lot of times we are motivated by our senses, our, our affective elements of conscience, the feelings we have of sympathy towards one another, the guilt that we might feel if we realize that, you know, somebody short, we shortchanged someone or somebody shortchanged us, right? Um, the helper's high that we get when we actually do something for someone else. So these work along with our rational aspects to kind of create the conscience. And this uh, question is philosophers. Here's a question for you all again. Philosophers such as Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. argue that violence can never be justified by moral outrage. Instead, we need to use our moral reasoning to devise nonviolent strategies for responding to violence. Do you agree? Why or why not? So here's the question of if you're outraged by something and you want to protest and you want to go out there and you really believe that, you know, especially uh, if there's an injustice going in the world and you're morally outraged by that, we cannot uh, respond with violence. Uh, Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. really say that it's important for us to have nonviolent strategies, despite whatever outrage we might feel. Do you think this is viable? So Jean Piaget noted that children go through distinct stages of moral development, including hetero, uh, heteronomy and autonomy. And the cognitive developmental approach to moral development is based on the following assumptions and findings. So certain concepts like moral excellence are fundamental to all humans. Do you think this is true? Everybody wants to be moral. Everybody wants to be excellent in some way or another. Humans have an intrinsic potential and drive to grow from lower to higher stages of moral development. Each stage of moral development involves structurally different modes or paradigms for making moral decisions. Stages of moral development are universal and transcultural. That would be interesting, right? Do you agree with that? People progress through different stages sequentially. They don't skip stages. Changes or gains made in moral development tend to be retained. People tend to prefer the highest stage of moral development that's conceptually available to them, and it's more desirable to reason at a higher stage. So this is what Piaget and Kohlberg and uh, Nell, uh, not Nell Noggs, uh, Carol Gilligan, are really working through these ideas that people are developing in their conscience, in their morals over time. 
and that we all universally across the world, no matter what culture, background, or anything that we're coming from, really want to go through these stages and develop into the best possible person that we can be. Lawrence Kahlberg identifies three uh, levels of moral development, each having two stages. There's pre-conventional, conventional, post-conventional. Pre-conventional level involves punishment and obedience uh, and the egoist stages. The conventional level involves the good boy, nice girl, and culture maintaining stages. And the post-conventional level involves co social contract reasoning and principal moral reasoning. Now, this is this idea that, you know, when you're very young, you have a sense of, you know, what are you trying to avoid when you're very, very young? You're avoiding punishment. You're trying to be obedient to whoever's in charge. If you're a child, uh, if you're one of my kids, you know, maybe you don't listen to me. Uh, but you ideally want to be obedient and nice to avoid the TV being taken away for the whole day. Uh, if you're in the conventional stage, this is kind of culture maintaining. I am a good citizen. I am a good person. I want to do things according to the rules. And if a law is unjust, well, it's still the law, right? But the post-conventional level involves reasoning about these things, wondering, is it just? Is it fair? Am I being principled uh, based off of like what my own values are? And the society is the society around me fair? And to get to that stage, only about 10%, according to their studies, Kohlberg studies, uh, only 10% of U.S. adults ever reach the post-conventional stage of moral reasoning. Although college tends to move students into a higher stage of moral reasoning, most college students don't successfully make the transition into the post-conventional stage. So what am I saying here? Those of you who are listening to this have an advantage over others because you're actively, critically thinking through how you relate to the world as a moral actor, as an ethical subject. Are you kind of following the rules because you want to avoid punishment? Uh, are you maintaining your culture? Or are you looking to kind of expand into the uh, post-conventional level? So culture and profession have an impact on one's level of moral reasoning. And Carol Gilligan uh, kind of took this uh, argument or took the idea that people are going from one conventional stage to another to say that women in general are more likely to use a care perspective and men are more likely to use a justice perspective in their moral reasoning. So she postulates a three stages of moral re reasoning as well. Pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional, or self-centered, self-sacrificing, and mature care ethics. So this is the same sort of progression from a childhood to a mature, fully uh, critical and understanding adult who is uh, synthesizing both care and justice perspectives. This is what Gilligan, uh, Gilligan and Kohlberg later came to agree. So there's also the work of James Rest that's mentioned in here, uh, with, who identifies four components of moral behavior. There's moral sensitivity, which is the awareness to how our actions affect others. We are sensitive. We are aware that like, you know, if I say something insensitive, uh, that hurts somebody else. And, Moral sensitivity is that awareness that we have when we actually realize that our consequences, our, our actions have consequences. They have uh, an effect on other people. If we say something insensitive, right, is because we are not aware of that. Moral reasoning and our judgment involves the ability to make critical judgments about moral values and various courses of action. Is it right or is it just right uh, for things to be the way they are? Uh, being able to make those judgments is a component of moral behavior. 
Moral motivation entails placing moral values above competing non-moral values. So like say your job asks you to do something unethical. Moral motivation would say, this is important to me. This is a, a, something that I want to be a virtuous or a, a ethical person. I'm going to not do this thing that my work wants me to do, even though it may cost me. Moral character is related to integrity, and it involves having certain personality traits like courage, perseverance, high self-esteem that predisposes us to act morally. So this is all about like how we come to be how we come to be moral subjects, uh, appropriate moral subjects. And so, here's another uh, one more question: is about um, these situations or these uh, um, scenarios, right? Uh, where people are lacking in some of these components of moral behavior. So the question is, people who make offensive comments are sometimes unaware of the effect their comments have on others. What are the ways that we might tactfully and sensitively point out someone's insensitive behavior? How might you best respond from a moral per point of view if that person becomes angry or offensive when their insensitive behavior is pointed out? So think through the following scenarios. You're at a party where someone makes a joke that is racist or sexist or homophobic. How do you respond? What do you do if they become defensive and angry? You're depressed uh, because your beloved dog just died and you don't feel up to going out to a party with your roommate. When you tell your roommate, they roll their eyes in disgust and say in an annoyed tone, Get over it. It's just a dog. How do you respond to them? A student in your calculus class is having difficulty uh, understanding an assignment. She raises her hand and asks the professor to explain the assignment. He replies that she shouldn't worry her pretty little head about such matters, but should instead ask one of the men in the class to help her with her homework. Right? This is, uh, you know, that one, I think somebody's going to lose their job for sure. Um, but anyway, the main takeaway of all of this uh, chapter is to really think about how working through our moral development is important because otherwise we're likely to follow cultural norms, even when they're destructive. And this kind of leads us straight into the next uh, reading, which, again, is very difficult. And I don't expect you to go through all the way. I don't expect you to comprehend the whole thing. Uh, it's filled with a lot of uh, kind of presumptions that you already know certain literatures. Uh, but it leads into this idea from uh, the last point that we made. Working through our moral development is important because otherwise we're likely to follow cultural norms. Because there's this point about subjectivity or uh, about um, whether or not ethics are subjective. And Philippa Foote brings up the example of Nazi concentration camps. If we are just following along, right, if we are not questioning and trying to do habituation, as Aristotle says, if we're not trying to have a eudaimonic life and have a certain kind of flourishing by being ethical, by working on ourselves and being reflective, then we might just follow the crowd into a point where bad things happen. Uh, I don't mean to go all, uh, you know, uh, what is the, uh, what is the thing where people immediately jump to Nazis? Um, but yeah, you know, uh, it's a serious concern that in this world, bad things happen and it happens because people are willing to follow the crowd. So in Placence's reading, uh, we have the a problem of, yeah, and now you can shut the podcast off if you don't want to go into this reading, but I will go over some of the stuff um, that they talk about. So theorists like Christensen Ward are too focused on journalism and the motives and duties of actors in an online world. 
So they might not think about like um, some broader, more important considerations. Like Playson says, a virtue ethics framework shifts our focus onto what behaviors and guidelines contribute to the flourishing of our digital lives. A true media ethic, this is from the reading, a true media ethic must account for persuasion messages, strategic communication campaigns, and media-based bar uh, marketing practices. The various sectors of our global media, news, information, and promotion are becoming increasingly intertwined and symbiotic in nature. When we talk about the various goods that responsible media practice maintains and protects, our notions of a global media ethic must be truly global, not just in the geographic sense, but in the sense of comp comprehensively accounting for uses and behaviors in all media sectors. So Ward and Christians are thinking too much about journalism and places is saying that by using foot, by using Aristotle, we can really be a lot more uh, holistic and comprehensive, especially if we go to this flourishing idea, this idea that virtue ethics brings up. So going back to Christensen Ward, Placens writes about a proto-norm as the conceptual foundation of a moral order. So and Christensen Ward have this idea of a reverence for the existence of a reverence for human life as the proto-norm, something that we can base all of our universal ethics that we come up with off of. But there's a problem with that, right? And that's the Nazi concentration camps. It can be a subjective thing. Um, Placence offers an overview of ethics and human flourishing after the, uh, discussing how we need to have some sort of universal, concrete, non-subjective approach to ethics. In his The Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle writes of the normative value of practical wisdom, or phronesis, as residing in both the ability to deliberate well and the ability to apply it to daily living. Quote, the man or a person who is without qualification good at deliberating is the person who is capable of aiming in accordance with calculation at the best of the best for people of things attainable by action nor is practical wisdom concerned with universals only. It has to recognize the particulars. So what does this mean? According to Placence, exercising practical wisdom to realize how to properly incorporate the virtues opens the path to eudaimonia, or a flourishing life. So the content of virtuous character is determined by what we need or what we are, qua human beings. This is also from another reading. Foote says that people are hardwired to seek good in their lives, a type of flourishing, so that the things people do to ensure or promote such qualities are by definition virtuous. And you can skip over natural normativity. It really answers some of the harder questions about intuit intuitionism in virtue theory and the threat of committing the naturalistic fallacy. What's important for us here is to understand how virtue ethics apply to digital media. So digital flourishing involves two, uh, involves how we understand the mediums or technology. Uh, Martin Heidegger, this is a quote from the uh, reading as well. Martin Heidegger said that we fall victim to a mischaracterization of both technology and human nature when we presume that technology is strictly instrumental. This is when we're thinking that, you know, a gun is just a gun. Uh, Facebook is just Facebook. It has no values or ethics in and of itself. Quote from the reading again. The technological act of bringing forth a revealing of things is indeed an intrinsic element of human nature. But if we fail as, a mor as moral agents, if the technological stance is used to explain the extent of our relationship with the world. Similarly, the means versus ends dichotomy is an insufficient lens through which to fully apprehend our digital lives. 
being technological in his sense of the term, uh, which is Heidegger's sense of the term, is what human beings are wired for, just as Foote says that human flourishing is predicated on the moral facts of human goodness. Another quote from the reading, technology, David Noble writes, David Noble is a historian of technology who's really good too, technology leads a double life, one which conforms to the intentions of designers and interests of power and another which contradicts them, proceeding behind the backs of their architects to yield unintended consequences and unintended possibilities. So we could really drag this out, but the main thing is that we have to understand what the affordances, what the kind of ethics and virtues that are embedded or baked into the technologies involve. We really have to kind of question what we're able to do, what is possible for us on those platforms, and how what we do is sometimes against the interests or the intentions of designers. Uh, how power is working, both in the power of the users versus the power of the designer. So in the last few sections, Placence uses Foote's theory, uh, virtue theory, sorry, virtue theory, to talk about some normative standards and expectations for life online, in terms of virtuality and authenticity, privacy and autonomy, and exchange and discourse. So for virtuality and authenticity, there's this idea that you know we have a ability to have a backstage space, and this is what Irving Goffman writes about. Our backstage conduct is one that allows minor acts which might easily be taken as symbol, uh, symbolic of intimacy and disrespect for others present. Um, so we can make mistakes, right? When we go online and we use an avatar, when we use uh, a pseudonym, when we use a screen name, uh, it's okay for us to experiment, to mess around, to do things that kind of allow us to be authentic to ourselves without risking anything to ourselves. But as a quote from the paper, as long as commercial interests and interest in surveillance capabilities are given priority and thus only front stage real name behavior is sanctioned, the structure of digital communications will continue to hinder the potential of human flourishing and our capacity for authenticity will be compromised. This is important because when you are online, there's a record of what you're doing. And it leads directly into the second section. And I won't relate the entire story of Stacy Snyder, but this is a really good example. Uh, and the authors talk about how our conception of digital privacy not only has to have the ability for us to be authentic and virtual and not our true selves, right? Uh, allow us to be our true selves without using our real names, but our conception of digital privacy has to include a right to forget provision. This is what many theorists argue, including um, Meglita Jones, uh, who wrote Control Z, uh, Right to Forget, um, which is more of a thing in Europe than it is in the States. But uh, digital archiving of our personal content is increasingly limiting the abilities of uh, self-definition. So what do you think about that? I mean, are, have you ever not posted something because you were afraid how it might reflect on you later? Lastly, exchange and discourse. So this is a quote from the book, or from the uh, reading, a discursive network, a model of digital media would not only shift our focus away from the instrumentalism, right, thinking of a thing as just a thing, but would also serve as a vehicle for the cultivation of moral agency in its audience by scrutinizing truth claims, opening and promoting spaces of engagement for various publics, and foster respectful discourse and transparency. So all of this applies to the way that how can we be our true moral virtuous selves in digital and in online spaces. And this is how like uh, Placence is taking this virtue ethics framework 
and moving away from a professional's code of ethics to thinking about what, how would it apply in all global aspects of our lives and not just global being, you know, geographic, but being holistic in the media, being involved in all sorts of kinds of communications and networks. So this is, again, uh, an overview of what virtue ethics means for media. Uh, well, A, what virtue ethics mean, uh, B, also what ethics of care are doing and how they might apply to digital media. And we didn't really get into how uh, ethics of care apply here. Uh, there are additional readings on that if you want, but I don't want to keep it too long today. Uh, I just want to, again, reflect that ethics of care, uh, I mean, sorry, virtue ethics are kind of uh, have to do with our motivations and they have to do with how we see ourselves as virtuous people. And we're really related to the development, fostering and growing of ourselves as ethical subjects in the world. So hopefully it's another compelling perspective, a nice alternative to deontology and consequentialism. And uh, now that we've discussed eudaimonia and um, uh, eudaimonia and habituation, you can think of that as being sort of the everyday process of becoming a virtuous and ethical person. And hopefully you're compelled to take your own ethical development further along to the post-conventional levels that we talked about. So I hope uh, you enjoyed this episode, although it was a little longer, and I look forward to talking with you all on Slack and on uh, Zoom this week if you are available. Take care.